Welcome to The Outpouring with Executive Pastor Bob Oliver of the New Covenant Church of Philadelphia. Having ministered to people for more than 60 years and having had the task, it wasn't always a privilege, the task sometimes to stand at the, on the bedside of persons who are passing on. I've realized that there are a number of regrets that people have when they are at the end of their journey. And I'd like to share four of them with you. Four of the regrets of dying people. Regret number one, I wish I had been a better example to my family and friends of how to deal with life's many pressing and demanding issues. I wish, I wish I had done better. I had been a better example of how to deal with life's demanding issues. Uh, the second one of the regrets is, I wish I had made fewer promises and kept them. Rather than making so many, I didn't even plan to keep. And they regret that. The third is that in much of my life, I wish I was more willing to express true gratitude to people and to honestly forgive people from the depths of my heart. And they felt at that time it was too late because they are passing on the wish they had taken the time to express gratitude and to forgive. And the fourth dominant regret is that I wish I had the wisdom and the courage to stretch myself towards fulfilling my true purpose in life. There's nothing worse than to stand or, or sit at the bedside of a person who's dying and hear them express that they have not pursued their purpose. They spent 40, 50, 60, 70 years and never made an effort, to, not just to know, but to fulfill the purpose for which God has created them. It's Father's Day, and there are more than 70 million fathers in America. And Father's Day celebrates fatherhood, the relationships, the influence of fathers in society. Fathers and families existed long before there was a church. As a matter of fact, the family was the first church on earth. They, um, there's an old Portuguese proverb which says, um, and there's a, there's a picture of it, of what it says. However, it says you can't write straight on crooked lines. You can't write straight on crooked lines. My message today is that God always writes straight on crooked lines because all of us are crooked and none of us is straight. And we are told that in Romans chapter 3 and verse 32 it says all have sinned and all have come short of the glory of God. Therefore, no one can look down on the other because we all came out soiled. And yet, God in his majesty and his power has the ability to accomplish his perfect will by using crooked people 
because he is able to take whatever we offer him and use it for his glory and for our good. He still achieves his perfect plan through the imperfect actions of imperfect people. I'm grateful that God has given me the privilege of being a father. I'm grateful for a number of reasons. Number one, fatherhood is the key half of what makes humanity possible. There could be no human beings if there were no fathers. So fatherhood is a key half of what makes humanity possible. Secondly, true fatherhood is being part of a family and sharing in raising offsprings who understand and respect other individuals in the world. A father has to help his family to understand and respect other people. It's part of the task of fatherhood. The third is that true fatherhood helps in knowing, shaping, guiding, and correcting, and even affirming their children as they mature. We are able to guide, motivate, affirm, correct our children as they mature. And before true fatherhood helps our families to function in creating meaningful and empowering relationships. Because life is relationships. No one lives to himself. Life is relationships. And um, the more and the better we understand that, uh, the better the quality of our lives. Number five, true fatherhood has responsibilities that change their relationships with everything else. There's something about being a father that opens your eyes and changes your, your relationships with so many things and things that might have been important to you in the past. Um, number seven, fatherhood introduces one to many un avoidable realities. Life has unavoidable realities. And fatherhood helps to introduce us to some of them. And hopefully, as Christian fathers, we want to bless our children with the rich legacy of the things of God so that they may follow God all of their lives. It's the calling and part of the mission of fatherhood. Now, when you read the scriptures, you realize what people consider to be important. And it's not just in the scriptures. Just look at your own journey, and your own journey will reveal what you think is important. When we go to the Bible, we find Mary and Joseph taking Jesus when he was 12 years old to the temple in Jerusalem because that was the appropriate thing to do for what we call, what the Jewish culture calls the presentation. Now, they left Nazareth and traveled to Jerusalem. That was a journey of 58 miles. It took them five days on foot. There were no automobiles. There were no trains. Mary might have been sitting on a donkey. And Joseph and Jesus were walking. It took them five days to get from Nazareth to Jerusalem because they felt getting to Jerusalem was important. He was 12 years old. It was important for him to present himself to the rabbis of the synagogue. It was important for him to receive the blessing at age 12. At age 12, in the Jewish culture, something happens. He becomes a man. He becomes a man. And his becoming a man at age 12 
it was important for them to take that 58-mile 50, journey to Jerusalem, to the temple, because that was important in Jesus' development. It is interesting that when you go through that presentation in the synagogue at age 12, there are certain responsibilities that the rabbi assumes that you already understand. The rabbi assumes that you were prepared for this experience. The rabbi doesn't say, well, he's 12 years old and therefore this is it. No. The rabbi assumes that Jesus was prepared. And I believe that Mary and Joseph would not have traveled all those miles, 58 miles by foot, taking them five days one way. They wouldn't have done that unless they knew that they had adequately prepared their son for the questions the rabbi would have asked. By the time he was 12 years old, he's now accepting adult responsibilities. And I want to give you five of those responsibilities that Jesus was accepting at the age of 12 because that was the age of manhood. The first responsibility was that he had to be able to read fluently from the books of Moses, Genesis, not all the books of Moses, but from the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, but he also had to memorize large sections of it by the time he's 12. It was required of him by the time he reaches manhood to have captured the essence of the books of Moses, to memorize parts of it. As a matter of fact, if you remember, the Bible says when he went to the temple, he stood up to read. That's what the verse says. He stood up to read because he knew what he was reading, and he had memorized part of what he's reading. He stood up to read. The second accomplishment he had to have accomplished, have completed by the time he's 12, is a commitment to obey the Ten Commandments. He had to commit himself to obey the Ten Commandments. The third is that he had to make a decision to be a law-abiding citizen because you can't obey the Ten Commandments and not be a law-abiding citizen. If you're not law-abiding, law you are not obeying the Ten Commandments. So the third accomplishment was that he had to make a decision to obey and be a law-abiding citizen. The fourth is that he became responsible at age 12 for his actions. From that point in his life, neither he nor any aspect of society can blame his parents for anything he did. He accepted the responsibility of manhood and was responsible for his actions from that point. And number five, by that time, when he presents himself to the synagogue, to the rabbis, he had to know what his life work was going to be at age 12. At age 12. So when Mary and Joseph left, and then they got to a distance and realized that he wasn't with Mary and he wasn't with Joseph. They had to turn right back and come back to the temple. And they found him there sitting and talking to the lawyers and the doctors. And they said to him, why have you done this to us? We have been looking for you. And he said, why were you looking for me? Do you not know I must be about my father's business? His mission was his father's business. He was clear about what his profession would be. He would spend his life developing his father's business. And all through the life of Jesus, until he died on the cross, he was pursuing his father's business. Amen. Now, I don't have the time 
to make com comparisons, but both you and I realize that we as a society are far away from what I just talked about. Because our young men don't always know that they're men. And uh, we have no way of communicating correctly in their minds at what point they reach manhood to take on responsibilities. Let me move on. By the time he comes to the temple at age 12 and he communicates his profession, the rabbi would then appoint mentors back in Nazareth to work with this young man. Mentors at age 12 to help him develop and pursue what he says is his life's task, life's mission. What, 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 what would happen if we were to do something like that? where we can have some of our men mentoring some of our younger men. I'm not saying boys, but younger men. Helping them to solidify their dreams and their goals. I was impressed with Nathan as he was singing because it brought tears to my eyes. Because at his age of 13, I was preaching up a storm. I was sharing in running revivals. I'm so grateful uh, that I had a pastor who and his wife who touched my life and gave me the freedom to allow what God was in me to come out. I was, um, oh, I was in my later years. <laughs> a young adult, young adult. When uh, an, uh, a, 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 a person with whom I was interacting in Bible college they didn't like me very much. And um, he would always look for opportunities to insult me. And then one day, he felt he had diagnosed my problem. And he says, you know what your problem is? You keep insisting in having a mind of your own. And I said, I do. I do have a mind of my own. And that was something that irritated him. Because I always saw things differently. And so he was totally irritated that I keep insisting and in having a mind of my own. But the mind that I had was not borrowed. It was the mind God gave me. And it's the mind he's still allowing me to use. And so the very thing that offended him was something I was thanking God for. But I wondered many a day what might have happened to other young men to whom he had said that. And how they would have closed up just to become a pleaser. Are you there? So, and there's so many persons who at the first challenge or the first insult or the first question, the flower just closes, closes down. I thank God that he gave me a mind of my own that I'm still able to use it. Mahatma Gandhi was a lawyer, a politician, um, a social activist, a writer, 
and one who was very instrumental in struggling with the British to bring independence to India. Mahatma Gandhi once said, he was asked a question about his message. And his answer was very simple. He said, my life is my message. My life is my message. Sometimes we think our message is all the wonderful things we say, and yet the truth is our lives happen to be our message. And if the things, if our life is not, is not coordinated with what we say, then people don't hear a thing we say. Because our lives are our message. And for every single person here, their life is your message. And sometimes we have to straighten it out. But in the final analysis, it's all you have. Your money is not your message. Your bank account is not your message. Your big house is not your message. You can lose all of that overnight. Mahatma Gandhi said, my life is my message, and that is true for every father. It's true for every woman. It's true for every mother. It's true for every person. Your life is your message. Questions. What do you think comes to the mind of the angels in heaven when they think, see the Father or look at the Father? What do, you, what do you think comes to the mind of the angels? Well, Isaiah tells us what comes to their minds. He says they shout, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. That's what comes to their mind when they see the Father. But here's the big question. Put on your seat belts. What comes to your mind when you think of your dad? What message does it send when you think of your own fathers? I am not going to go into the message, but I will say that whatever message it sends continues to live with you to this day. Whatever influence your father had, whether it's negative or positive, continues to influence your life to this day. And so we as fathers have a great responsibility. We're not perfect, but we have a great responsibility to keep remembering that our interactions remain with people and with our children and our children's children. I've had the privilege, <laughs> it may sound funny, I've had the privilege of having two fathers. I had a natural biological father who was responsible for my natural birth. He, was, he contributed to my natural birth, my natural father. And then I had a second father, my pastor, who contributed to my spiritual birth. He led me to Jesus when I was age 11 at a vacation Bible school. And he and his wife gathered so many of us as children together, personally teaching us. I was so surprised when I went to vacation Bible school at age 11. Our, 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 our church was the only church of its type in the country. As a matter of fact, my pastor had built it. He designed it, and he supervised the building of it. It had a sanctuary, and then it had six classrooms and a fellowship hall. And you can go into the sanctuary, 
or you can bypass the sanctuary and go to classroom number one, or classroom number two, or classroom number three, classroom number four. See, he designed it because of his interest in children. And so when I went to vacation Bible school, to my surprise at age 11, the pastor himself was teaching the class and built a relationship with us. And last week, last week, I was on the phone talking to a number of individuals who were with me they too were age 11 in that class. And they're still serving in the church in different parts of the country and in different countries of the world because of the impact that pastor had on us as children and the relationships they built. So I've had two fathers, a natural and a spiritual father. You see, we are not perfect, but God still writes how straight on crooked lines. So we don't have to judge ourselves. God still writes straight on crooked lines. With all the crookedness, there are spiritual possibilities and potential in all of us. And we have to live with our imperfections and yet realize that God still writes straight on crooked lines. If anyone asks you what my subject was, that's it. God still writes straight on crooked lines. And he still writes with crooked people. As I was growing up with a fascinating a fascination for the church, couldn't get church out of my system, it was in my system. That's what love does. I, um, I was totally misunderstood by my parents, by my mother, because she thought I was preoccupied with church. I've, I've looked back at that now, how upset she was about my being in church Sunday school at, at 9.30 and morning service at 11 and youth ministries at 6 and then evening service at 7.30. And then in the afternoons, we're going out with our group to minister to the sick and minister to the shut-ins and the homes for the aged. I had a passion. And my mother got more and more upset. And at age 14, she put me out of my house. You know that. You know the story. For more than 55 years, I have blamed her for having put me out at age 14. And yet, several months ago, I experienced a total metamorphosis, a total change in my thinking. Because I came to realize that what she did for me in putting me out was one of the greatest things she could have done. Because she pushed me out of one stream, one flow, one stream, and she pushed me into a totally different stream. And it's that stream that is significantly responsible for what I've become. I couldn't be your pastor if she had not put me out. I came to realize that God was involved in her putting me out. Mm. 
rather than swimming in one lake, I was forced to swim in something much bigger with more people who were moving in that direction. I'm very grateful. Very grateful. But the metamorphosis, metamorphosis, the change of thinking came a few months ago when I was going through the books on my shelves, and I have, I literally have thousands of books. I have books in my office, and I have books in the shelves in Granham Hall. I was going through some books, and I pulled out an old Bible. And I opened it and realized that I had pasted an article in the inside of the front cover. And um, the title of that article was, This Thing Is From Me. This Thing Was From Me. I can't remember having read it, and I can't remember when I pasted it in, but it was there after all these decades. And it says, this thing is from me. You're passing through challenges and difficulties and temptations and being misunderstood. You're struggling in rough places, in the valleys of the shadows. You, you have overwhelming circumstances, but this thing is from me. Are you saying, God, are you saying that this is, yes. It's from me. This thing is from me. Your weakness needs my might. And your safety lies in allowing me to fight your battles. You're surrounded by people that do not understand you people who put you in the background and try to leave you there, but this thing is from me. I'm the God of your circumstances. You did not come here by accident. This is the very place I meant for you to be. This thing is from me. Wow. A new insight. And that new insight caused me to look at my mother having put me out as God was in that. God was in that. And how do we handle the circumstances that we have, the challenges we face, the difficulties on the job and problems in the home? I want to say to you, this thing is from God. It doesn't mean he has done it, but he is in it. He's in it. He's in it. He's in it. There's a verse of scripture in Romans 8.28. And I'm going to ask, keep the poet on the screen, that I've had difficulty understanding. No, I'm, I consider myself to be intellectual. I have a number of degrees. As a matter of fact, I turned down an offer to be the dean of the Graduate School of Adult Education at Temple. I turned it down. And yet, in all of that, with all of that brilliance, I've had difficulty dealing with this verse. Romans 8:28 is on the screen. It says, for we know that all things, who can finish the verse? Now, I can understand much of that verse, but the one word I need help in defining is the word all. I need help in defining all. Because in my mind, it couldn't be all. It's got to be some. Now, I have two buckets here. As a matter of fact, it's right here. 
All things, all things work, not separately, but together. You see, if, if they work separately, then there's unemployment in the kingdom. And there's no unemployment in the kingdom. Everything has a job. All things work together for good to those who love the Lord. So look at your situation. Look at all, all of your life, your entire journey, and place them. Imagine you're placing them all in this container, in this bucket. Everything you've gone through, every situation, problems in the job, people you've interacted with, those who like you and those who don't like you, put them all together in this one container, this bucket. My life is, the summary of my life is in there. The joys, the sorrows, the pain, the tears are all in there. The misunderstandings, the lies that persons have told on me, the accusations, they're all in this bucket. All, not some, all. Everyone, every challenge, every pain, every difficulty, it's all in there. But you say, Bishop, when I, when I look at all that is in there, I realize that there are some, there's a mostly good thing, but there's some bad things in there, since it's all. Are you there? So let's, let's take out the bad things and put them in the other bucket. And leave just the good things, the nice things, the blessings in this bucket. And now we're separating the experiences. Are you, there? Are you with me? Yeah. We're separating the experiences. And we're putting the difficulties and the challenges and the misunderstandings and the lies that are told on me. I'm putting it in there. So I know now what is left in here the good things. And I know what has been put in there, the bad things, the challenging things. And so now, having separated my total life experience, I have a question. What do I do with those? What do I do with that? I can't disregard them. They're real. What do I do with them? What do I do with the pain that's in there? What else is in there? Tell me. Huh? Lies. Pardon me? Lies. Lies in there. What else? Heartbreaks. Heartbreaks. Yes. yes. What else? Failures. Pardon me? Failures. Failures are in there. Disappointments are in there. Fears. Huh? Fears. Fears. They're all in there. And all of those things are, if not created by, influenced by people. What do I do with them? Well, there's a... It's not just a suggestion, a recommend. It's, it's, it's a recommendation of how to handle those. And, and Jesus tells us how to do it. Because just as the word all has power... Are you still with me? Jesus says in his Lord's Prayer, and forgive us our trespasses as, 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 in the Lord's Prayer is as powerful as all in Romans 8.28. As we forgive. Forgive us as. It's a conditional verse. It's a conditional. Forgive me as I forgive others. And so, I have to find a way to forgive all the folks who have contributed to that container, to that bucket. Because until I learn to do that, I'm carrying all, not just 
the experiences with the people on my shoulder through life. The inability to forgive people is like my drinking poison and wishing that somebody else would die. When you drink poison, guess who dies? You do. And so not forgiving is like drinking poison and wishing that somebody else will die. It isn't going to work. You've got to get all that load off your back, off your mind, off your spirit, off your psyche. And you can only do it by forgiving. 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 There's a passage in the Bible where a woman was caught in adultery, committing adultery. I've always thought about that. They brought her to Jesus, saying, Jesus, we caught her in the act of adultery. We caught her by herself. Was she committing adultery by herself? But you caught her. Jesus saw the hypocrisy of their statement because she couldn't have been committing adultery by herself. But they brought her to Jesus. And Jesus picked up some stones. They thought he was going to pelt them with it. And um, he put the stones down. He says, whoever is without sin, cast the first. As a matter of fact, they said, and Moses said that she should be stoned because she was caught in adultery. Moses said she should be stoned. And Jesus said, he who is without sin, cast the first stone. We have to come to the point where we forgive. You can't just nurse, nurse all the hurts. You can't nurse all the disappointments. You can't keep crying about the same things. At some point you have to say, I'm going to release this through forgiveness. Because forgiveness is the only path to victory. Forgiveness. 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 Life is made up of a variety of experiences. And um, it was one of the Philadelphia writers, um, William Cowper, who wrote a great hymn. He says, God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercies and shall break with blessings on your head. He says his purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. And then he concludes, blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his works in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. He will make it plain. You cannot have true fellowship with God if you're simply focused on yourself. The self-centered person can never please God. Even the act of prayer, when you're praying, what are you doing? What is prayer? Prayer is, a, you say, well, prayer is asking God for things. <laughs> and it is. But prayer is 
submitting yourself to God so you can get the things you ask for. It's a surrendering to God. What are we doing when we are serving? We are surrendering to God. A person who is wrapped up in himself or herself can never please God. And really will not know God because there are dimensions of God that you will never capture when you're focusing just on you. That's why the songwriter says, blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his works in vain. God is his own interpreter. God is his own interpreter, and in fullness of time, he will make it plain. You can't interpret for God. One of the challenges about trusting God is that trusting God involves pain and conflict. Conflict. Conflict because in trusting God, you're always fighting you. You two have an, you're either fighting you or fighting God. And you aren't going to win fighting God. But what, where comes the conflict? Where's the conflict? The conflict comes because I want to do things my way. And God wants me to do things His way. And we don't have a meeting of the minds. For instance, God says to tithe, Lord, I can't afford to do that. Lord says to serve one another. I don't have the time for that, Father. We think it's negotiating, but it isn't. And so we, 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 there's this conflict and challenge that we're dealing with because we have such a tendency to try to fight God because I want it my way. So I can sing the song, I did it my <laughs> Could I get an Emmy for that? Could I? <laughs> See? I did it my way. I did it my way. And God is saying, why about trying my way? What about making the decisions my way? What about serving me my way? If you don't make the decision to do it his way, you will always live in conflict with God. And you cannot be in conflict with God and be in harmony with people. Are you there? Okay, let's stop. Let's stop for a moment. Let's talk about what you heard. What have you heard? Give me a sentence that you've heard. No, 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 not that you heard. A sentence you understood. There's a slight difference, you know. What, what, when you leave here today, give me, give me one thought that you're, cap, that you're taking with you. Anybody? Anybody? Take the plunge. We're friends. <laughs> but yes. Ah, God still writes straight on crooked... I wonder where you got that from. <laughs> God still writes straight on crooked lines, and God still writes straight with crooked people. And all of us are crooked because all have sinned and come short of the glory. Ah, there's no unemployment in, in the kingdom. Everything has a job. And that's why all things work together for good to those who love the Lord and to those who are called according to his purpose. Pardon me? You can't please God if you're wrapped up in yourself. You can't please God if you're wrapped up in yourself. What's that? That word, that word. That word. The grace, grace of God. The grace of God. The grace of God. The grace of God. Yeah, grace. Go ahead. 
Shout. You're too busy chasing your own will to capture the will of God or to satisfy the Lord. Your own will. Your own will. Huh? No, 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 let me speak, let me speak. What is he saying? Tell me what he said. The Good Samaritan? What is that? Who, who, how old is he? Five. Those of you over five should be ashamed that you're not saying anything. He's five and he's responding. Give me an illustration. Good Samaritan. Congratulations. You're doing a great job. Yes. Why don't, you, why don't you move the mask for a minute? Um, you, 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 it's, it's difficult to separate the good from the bad. But there's a, there is a, un, unless you're putting the individuals who have contributed to the bad in the other container mm. so you can forgive them. So you can forgive them. And you know, it is a lack of forgiveness that creates the hurts. It is not simply the thing that the person did to hurt me. It's just the, the memory, the lack of forgiveness that creates the hurt. And if we can just forgive, it would make such a difference in our lives. And as we're forgiving the other people in that bucket, you sometimes have to forgive your own self. Ooh. As you forgive the other people in the other bucket, you, always, you also have to learn to forgive yourself. Forgive yourself. And let me give you a secret about forgiving yourself. Believe that God heard you. Because he answers and he forgives. We have to believe that he heard us. And if we can do that, it's easier to deal with forgiving ourselves. Yes, sir. Invest in children. Invest in children. This last week we were talking, we were talking about our church. And we, who were talking about our church? We were 11 and 12 years old at the time. But it's still in our system. The investment of our pastor has remained in us. Amen. I remember the day when I, I had a, I, we, the pastor began preaching about tithing. I'd never heard about tithing. I couldn't even spell the word. <laughs> but he began preaching on tithing, and I thought to myself, I don't have any money to tithe. I don't have any money to tithe. I've been put out of our home at age 14. I don't have any money to tithe. So I saw the pastor in the, in the, in the sanctuary one day, and I said to him, I don't have any money to tithe, but I have an idea. He says, I'm, I said, I go to school from Monday to Friday. I'm free on Saturday mornings. I'll come to your house and do whatever work you and your wife want me to do as my tithe. As my tithe. Every Saturday, I walk those miles, miles to go to their home, bathe the dog, to wash the car, whatever you want it done, as my tithe. At noon, they'll call me upstairs for a sandwich. And this one day... I was having a sandwich with my pastor and his wife, and she said something to me that literally blew my mind, literally blew my mind. She, she used to call her husband daddy. She used to call her husband daddy, because that's, that's what the children called him, daddy. She said, daddy and I can't wait to attend your graduation from college. I was eating a sandwich and I choked. Because I was over 16 years old and nobody had ever mentioned college to me. It never crossed my mind because I thought college was for smart people. 
and I wasn't. And I remember when I left their home and I'm walking to the place where I was staying, I'm saying to myself, how could she, how could she think that I could go to college? I mean, she's an educated person. How can she look at me and think I can go to college? But that one sentence, that one sentence, I went to college because of her expectation. I went to college because of her expectation. She felt I could do it. She felt I could do it. And then later on, I furthered my education. I have a lot of education. But it's a document which was put out by Temple University. And I think it's captured on the New Covenant website. It says that I was the first student in the history of Temple University to complete my master's and my doctorate with honors in every subject. First in the university. First, first in the university's history. Because a pastor's wife said to me, we can't wait. We can't wait. If I ever preach a sermon on single sentences, that would be one of the single sentences. We can't wait. We can't wait. You have no idea what you can become until you take the risk. Until you take the risk. And when the dean of the graduate school met with me, telling me that the decision was made for me to be the dean, for me to be the dean at the Graduate School of Education, a temple. I couldn't believe it, but he couldn't understand why I was, ac I was not accepting it. I wasn't accepting it because I didn't want to, I didn't want to, let me use the right word, dilute my focus on what God called me to do. On what God, I could, I could have used the money, <laughs> but I didn't want to dilute my focus on what God called me to do. And I want to suggest to you as I wrap up, what has God called you to do? What has God called you to do? What, 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 is, what, has God, what is God saying to you about you? That God always has the time to work with you when you're ready to work with him. Serving God is one thing. Pleasing God involves conflicts. Serving God is one thing, but pleasing God involves conflicts because the biggest conflict you will have is with you. It's with you. Any other, any other comment or question? I'm going to wrap this up. Anyone else? Yes, go ahead. Pardon me? When we pray, we don't just ask God for things. We submit to him. Yeah, um, don't just ask God for things, submit to him. Because, and the reason why I'm suggesting that to you, to submit to him, because the Bible says, the Father knows what things we stand in need of before we ask him. He knows what things we stand in need of before we ask him. So submit to him. I'm going to wrap up. Why don't you take the mask off so I can hear you. Yes, when you forgive persons, you're placing those persons in God's hands. 
That's what you're doing. You're placing those persons into God's hands. Yes, any, any other comment? If what? This idea of forgiveness. The idea of forgiveness. What about if that person insists in doing the same thing? Whatever, what happens if the person does the same thing? Yes. They'll be like us. Disappointing you. Yeah, they'll be like us. Keep on backbiting. Yeah, you said, what about, how do you forgive persons who will turn around and do the same thing? Yes. And I'm saying, that's what we do. So people are blaming people. Seven to times seven. Amen. <laughs> let, me, let me wrap up. Let me wrap up. I'm enjoying this too much. <laughs> seven to times seven. Go ahead, Brother Hans. Come right up so I can hear you. Seven to times seven. And don't keep counting. <laughs> That's what Jesus was saying. Don't keep counting. That's right. Thank you. Thank you and thank you. Thank you very much and happy Father's Day. Thank you for joining us in service today. We pray that this ministry has been a blessing to you and your family. To give your gift of love and help keep this ministry on the air, visit nccop.church giving for all of the ways that you can donate to the ministry. Thank you so much for your generosity and God's blessings until we meet again.